Section 37 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 4. Chapter 3. Napoleon. Part 3. Therefore Napoleon abandoned the intended invasion of England, and indeed in after days was prone to say that he had never seriously meant it, and turned his mind to conquest of the continental powers. He had soon provoked Austrians, Russians, Prussians to a half-unwilling quarrel. The two emperors, Austria, Russia, took the field. The latter, a young man, Alexander, believed in his innocence that he could beat Napoleon, and his first experience was Austerlitz. The battle began on the anniversary of Bonaparte's coronation, the 2nd of December, 1805, early in the morning. An hour after midday, Napoleon was master of Europe. A few days later, the Austrian Francis II signed the Peace of Pressburg. He renounced the proud title of Emperor of Germany. There no longer existed a Holy Roman Empire. That age-long enemy of France simply disappeared. But Napoleon permitted his vanquished foe to adopt the humbler style of Emperor of Austria as he signed away Venice, Istria, Dalmatia, Tyrol, and many lands in southern Germany and in place of the historic empire, the natural enemy of France, Napoleon created a new league of the German states which he called the Confederation of the Rhine. No terrible foe, but in Mr. Fisher's excellent phrase, a mosaic of weak and warring governments. For what Napoleon feared above all things was the unity of Germany. Then the King of Prussia declared war on France, his two armies were annihilated in nine days at Jena, as Auerstadt followed Austerlitz, and Napoleon marched into Berlin. There he learns that the Russians are coming to the aid of their allies, rushes toward them, beats them five times running on the banks of the Vistula, and hunts them into Poland. At Eylau they attempt to resist, but at Friedland the Russian general allows himself to be caught as in a trap and the French victory was so complete that Alexander believed his defeat irretrievable and consented to the conqueror's terms of peace. At Tilsit, at the first contact with his enemy, the enthusiastic Alexander became his adoring friend. By this campaign, Prussia was hopelessly mutilated, exhausted, and burdened with a French army of occupation, Russia had to recognize these changes and to accept a new kingdom of Westphalia with Napoleon's brother Jerome for its king. What is more, the Russian emperor had to consent to an alliance with the new Charlemagne. Napoleon was in the finest spirits. He liked the alliance. He liked the Tsar. A very handsome, good young emperor, with more mind than he is generally credited with, he liked being able to patronize handsome emperors, beautiful propitiatory queens like Louisa of Prussia and his old enemy, the ex-emperor of Germany. He loved to dominate, and again he turned his thoughts to our unconquered island, more hated than ever now since at Trafalgar, in 1805, Nelson had destroyed the French fleet. So, master of Europe in 1807, Napoleon parries the thrust by decreeing the continental blockade. That is to say, 
all european ports were to be closed to english trade they should neither buy nor sell nor have any traffic with us england was excommunicated and then irrepressible austria always defeated never irremediably vanquished austria influenced by england again declared war napoleon who just then was occupied in spain in a blaze of anger rushed across the pyrenees darted his lightnings on austria conquered again at wagram and imposed peace at vienna in eighteen o nine rivoli in seventeen ninety six marengo in eighteen hundred austerlitz in eighteen o five wagram in eighteen o nine how many more crushing defeats would austria require before napoleon could be sure of her submission did some accident set him to thinking of the old distich how austria made her way in the world not by fighting but by marrying to felix austria nube did the constant revolts of the untamed empire make him devise a new manner of bond and curb did the difficulties of establishing a succession for the throne of france suggest the wisdom of an imperial alliance josephine was six years older than her husband she could no longer expect to give him an heir he had loved her with an ardent sensual jealous passion she was the only woman he had loved so he averred on st helena but it was clear that she could not give a prince to the empire reasons of state prevailed like titus demisit in vitis in vitam a divorce was pronounced between the french emperor and his wife in eighteen ten he married the daughter of the emperor of austria maria louisa in eighteen eleven a son was born to them the king of rome napoleon had now entered the family of monarchs the little corsican lieutenant had become the nephew by marriage of marie antoinette so lofty so rapid an ascension may well disturb a conqueror's moral balance if i had been placed so high said the russian emperor as he gazed on napoleon's statue dominating the column of the place vendome if i had been placed so high my head too would have been dizzy lord rosebury is right in supposing that supreme power destroyed the equilibrium of napoleon's mind after wagram after the austrian alliance it is easy to see now that the conqueror should have lain low should have consolidated his magnificent position and not have sought to extend it it was difficult for the society of sovereigns to admit into their circle this victorious usurper who had humiliated them all yet if bonaparte had shown himself the bonaparte of seventeen ninety nine the scholarly quiet unassuming bonaparte who had disarmed suspicion before displaying his full power it is probable that europe would have swallowed that difficult doctrine of the natural limits would have accorded france the left bank of the rhine and the frontiers of the empire of gaul but now that napoleon thought himself sure of the non-opposition and even of the support of austria he became more than ever overweening and extravagant in his pretensions the expansion of france threatened the breathing space of europe charlemagne of old had had one only brother with whom to divide the spoils of empire napoleon had a whole ravenous family to find in thrones and crowns france naples westphalia holland 
did not exhaust his requirements lucien pauline caroline elisa were still without a sceptre the napoleon who declared that all the countries of europe should keep their archives in paris that the french empire should become the mother country of all sovereignties that all the kings of the earth should have palaces of residence in paris and attend in state the coronations of the french emperors had obviously lost the balance of his reason he had ceased to calculate coolly and to see any bounds moral physical or international to any freak of ambition which might occur to him at this period of his career did napoleon lose his grasp of reality was he really mad his ministers thought so his wild dreams of universal conquest filled them with mortal apprehension the feelings of talleyrand and fouche may be likened to those of a traveller driven by a lunatic chauffeur along some mountain road that skirts a precipice and not only themselves but the future of france was imperilled all the great functionaries who approached the emperor at that moment appear to have shared their dire misgiving voulez-vous que je vous dise la vérité said de Cray, the minister of marine to Marshal Marmont, Duke of Ragusa, in 1810. Voulez-vous que je vous dise la vérité? L'empereur est fou, tout à fait fou. Il nous culbutera tant que nous sommes. And Bernadotte, his old comrade in arms, just adopted by the King of Sweden for his heir, did not scruple to call his emperor of yesterday, un fou dangereux, a dangerous lunatic narbonne his general his minister the man whom napoleon loved exclaimed in eighteen twelve where is the keeper of this man of genius he's a madman said fouche c'est un insensé il faut en finir was he mad or was he merely as talleyrand said uncivilized at any rate his vast dreams his disregard of the possible his violence his impulsiveness his egotism fostered in those whom he offended a belief in the derangement of his mind a volney whom he kicked in the stomach for saying that france wanted the bourbon and who was carried unconscious from his presence or berthier whom he is said to have attacked with tongs or that chief justice whom he belaboured with his fists may be excused for having their doubts as to his sanity too often his servants and his ministers pleaded lunacy in their sovereign to attenuate the vileness of their treacherous intrigues yet in the treachery of a fouche or a talleyrand love of country played its part these ministers had undergone the strenuous training of the jacobins in all their avatars whether terrorists republicans pillars of the empire or the restoration they were at heart the men of ninety-three they had one religion their country and one only virtue patriotism despite their lack of honour fidelity morality or truth they had one ideal which constantly they served the ultimate advantage of france and it was not to the advantage of france in their thinking that napoleon should whirl her without cease along the mad career of a second attila from the day when the emperor began to cast his eyes with envy on turkey and india a secret discord divided him from the heads of his administration for talleyrand and fouche were disciples of danton they conceived france as a modern gaul so much no more 
certainly not a universal monarchia. Le Rhin, les Alpes, les Pyrenees, said Talleyrand, sont la conquête nationale. Le reste est la conquête de l'empereur. La France n'y tient pas. And the ministers of a dangerous madman, as they thought, began to hold private confabulations with his enemies. In 1809 they did all they could to undermine by secret intrigue the policy of their sovereign. Traitors to Napoleon, not to France. When in 1808 Napoleon went to Erfurt to discuss with Alexander the proposed conquest of Constantinople, Talleyrand lay in wait for the Tsar and accosted him. Sire, what are you doing here? Your part is to save Europe, and you can only save Europe by resisting Napoleon. The French nation is civilized. Its sovereign is not civilized. The emperor of Russia is civilized, not so the Russian people. Let the emperor of Russia be the ally of the people of France. The subtle, sentimental, vacillating Alexander was taken with this argument. Indeed, already the fascinating prestige of Napoleon, which had aroused his enthusiasm at Tilsit, was wearing thin. He perceived that the lion's ally must always accept the second place. Russia was sacrificed to the exigencies of the continental blockade. The trade of Russia demanded intercourse with England, which the French emperor forbade. End of section 37